Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend asked if I would read from my work as something they might find comforting and familiar amidst the uncertainty and anxiety we're experiencing from multiple sources in 2020. As of this opening, I've read Perishables, the first book of my five-book vampire and urban fantasy series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka falstaffbooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's bit.ly, slash perishables link. Now I'm reading from my short stories and other works, and occasionally I'll invite on a writer friend for special episodes called Public Domain Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, y'all, welcome to episode 51 good grief, of social distancing radio. There's now like twice as many episodes of any, uh, uh, in this podcast of any podcast I've ever made. And this is like my sixth or seventh podcast. So first let's get after this long, long ass work day and the chaos of the years. Let's get directly to the reading line. Mm. Yes. Mm. One more. Maybe three for good luck. Oh, yeah. Uh, if you like wine and over-the-top opinions, there is a really funny comedian named Matt Belisai. He has a bunch of videos up on Facebook and YouTube. And uh, now I've forgotten the name of his show, his series, but whatever. It's not a TV show. It's his series of videos. It's called something like, I don't know. I don't remember what it's called. The point being, he picks a topic. He chugs an enormous glass of wine. And then as the wine kicks in, he just like lets go about it. And he's really gay and really funny, and I find him just absolutely hilarious. So, if you like that kind of thing, maybe you'll like him. Now, speaking of stuff we like, let's get to Dracula. Also, I'm going to record, if all goes well this evening, I'll be recording three episodes of Social Distancing Radio, and a couple episodes of the beginning of The Lair of the White Worm, also by Ram Stoker for my patrons on Patreon, because that's why I won the poll. So let's get right to it so that I can do that. <clears throat> Goodness. Oh, I'm going to have to edit that out. That was a big old throw clearing. Mm. I'd have one more, a little bit of wine just to, you know, take the edge off. Chapter 4. Jonathan Harker's Journal. Continued. I awoke in my own bed. If it be that I had not dreamt, the Count must have carried me there. I tried to satisfy myself on the subject, but could not arrive at any unquestionable result. To be sure, there were small, certain small evidences, such as that my clothes were folded and laid by in a manner which was not my habit. 
my watch was still unwound, and I am rigorously accustomed to wind it in the last thing before going to bed, and many such details. But these things are no proof, for they may have been evidences that my mind was not as usual, and from some cause or another, I had certainly been much upset. I must watch for proof. Of one thing I am glad— if it was that the Count carried me here and undressed me, he must have been hurried in his task, for my pockets are intact. I am sure this diary would have been a mystery to him, which he would not have brooked. He would have taken or destroyed it. As I look round this room, although it has been to me so full of fear, it is now a sort of sanctuary. For nothing can be more dreadful than those awful women who were, who are, waiting to suck my blood. 18 May I have been down to look at that room again in daylight, for I must know the truth. When I got to the doorway at the top of the stairs, I found it closed. It had been so forcibly driven against the jam that part of the woodwork was splintered. I could see that the bolt of the lock had not been shot, but the door is fastened from the inside. I fear it was no dream, and must act on this surmise. 19 May. I am surely in the toils. Last night, the Count asked me in the suavest tones to write three letters, one saying that my work here was nearly done and that I should start for home within a few days, another that I was starting on the next morning from the time of the letter, and the third that I had left the castle and arrived at Bistritz. I would have fain have rebelled, but felt that in the present state of things it would be madness to quarrel openly with the Count whilst I am so absolutely in his power, and to refuse would be to excite his suspicion and to arouse his anger. He knows that I know too much, and that I must not live, lest I be dangerous to him. My only chance is to prolong my opportunities. Something may occur which will give me a chance to escape. I saw in his eyes something of that gathering wrath which was manifest when he hurled that fair woman from him. He explained to me that posts were few and uncertain, and that my writing now would ensure ease of mind to my friends. And he assured me with so much impressiveness that he would countermand the later letters which would be held over at Bistritz until due time in case chance would admit of my prolonging my stay, that to oppose him would have been to create new suspicion. I therefore pretended to fall in with his views and asked him what dates I should put on the letters. He calculated a minute and then said, The first should be June 12, the second June 19, and the third June 29. I know now the span of my life. God help me. 28 May. There is a chance of escape, or at any rate of being able to send word home. A band of Zgani have come to the castle and are encamped in the courtyard. These Zgani are gypsies. I have noted of them in my book. They are peculiar to this part of the world, though allied to the ordinary gypsies all the world over. There are thousands of them in Hungary and Transylvania, which are almost outside all law. They attach themselves as a rule to some great noble or boyar and call themselves by his name. They are fearless and without religion, save superstition, and they talk only their own varieties of the Romany tongue. I shall write some letters home and shall try to get them to have them posted. I have already spoken them through my window to begin acquaintanceship. They took their hats off and made obeisance and many signs, which, however, I could not understand any more than I could their spoken language. I have written the letters. Mina's is in shorthand, and I simply ask Mr. Hawkins to communicate with her. To her, I have explained my situation, but without the horrors which I may only surmise. 
It would shock and frighten her to death were I to expose my heart to her. Should the letters not carry, then the Count shall not yet know my secret or the extent of my knowledge. I have given the letters. I threw them through the bars of my window with a gold piece and made what signs I could to have them posted. The man who took them pressed them to his heart and bowed and then put them in his cap. I could do no more. I stole back to the study and began to read. As the Count did not come in, I have written here. The Count has come. He sat down beside me and said in his smoothest voice as he opened two letters, Zgani has given me these, of which, though I know not whence they come, I shall, of course, take care. See, he must have looked at it. What is from you and to my friend Peter Hawkins? The other, here he caught sight of the strange symbols as he opened the envelope, and the dark look came into his face, and his eyes blazed wickedly. The other is a vile thing, an outrage upon friendship and hospitality. It is not signed. Well, so it cannot matter to us. And he calmly held letter and envelope in the flame of the lamp till they were consumed. Then he went on. The letter to Hawkins that I shall, of course, send on since it is yours. Your letters are sacred to me. Your pardon, my friend, that unknowingly I did break the seal. Will you not cover it again? He held out the letter to me and with a courteous bow handed me a clean envelope. I could only redirect it and hand it to him in silence. Then he went out of the room. I could hear the key turn softly. A minute later, I went over and tried it, and the door was locked. When, an hour or two after, the Count came quietly into the room, his coming awakened me, for I had gone to sleep on the sofa. He was very courteous and very cheery in his manner, and seeing that I had been sleeping, he said, "'So, my friend, you are tired?' get to bed. There is the surest rest. I may not have the pleasure to talk tonight, since there are many labors to me, but you will sleep, I pray. I passed to my room and went to bed, and, strange to say, slept without dreaming. Despair has its own calms. 31 May. This morning when I woke, I thought I would provide myself with some paper and envelopes from my bag and keep them in my pocket, so that I might write in case I should get an opportunity. But again a surprise, again <laughs> a shock. Every scrap of paper was gone, and with it all my notes, my memoranda, relating to railways and travel, my letter of credit. In fact, all that might be useful to me were I once outside the castle. I sat and pondered a while, and then some thought occurred to me, and I made search of my portmanteau and in the wardrobe where I had placed my clothes. The suit in which I had traveled was gone, and also my overcoat and rug. I could find no trace of them anywhere. This looked like some new scheme of villainy. 17 June. This morning, as I was sitting on the edge of my bed, cudgeling my brains, I heard without a cracking of whips and pounding and scraping of horses' feet up the rocky path beyond the courtyard. With joy, I hurried to the window and saw drive into the yard two great later wagons, each drawn by eight sturdy horses and at the head of each pair a Slovak, with his wide hat, great nail-studded belt, dirty sheepskin, and high boots. They had also their long staves in hand, 
I ran to the door, intending to descend and try to join them through the main hall, as I thought that way might be opened for them. Again a shock. Again a shock. My door was fastened on the outside. Then I ran to the window and cried to them. They looked at me, looked up at me stupidly and pointed, but just then the hetman of the Sagani came out, and seeing them pointing to my window, said something, at which they laughed. Henceforth, no effort of mine, no piteous cry or agonized entreaty would make them even look at me. They resolutely turned away. The later wagons contained great square boxes with handles of thick rope. These were evidently empty by the ease with which the Slovaks handled them, and by the resonance as they were roughly moved. When they were all unloaded and packed in a great heap in one corner of the yard, the Slovaks were given some money by the Zgani, and spitting on it for luck, lazily went each to his horse's head. Shortly afterwards, I heard the cracking of their whips die away in the distance. Oh, what a... What a place to end this episode 51. A couple of thoughts. I'm really loving reading this. Uh, just really, really loving rereading this book. I love this book so much. And every time I reread it, I find something new. There's some new way that I connect to it. <clears throat> the fact that it's my favorite novel of all time probably helps. I got a really amazing letter. Thank you from a dear friend and listener to the show. And it is a great pleasure to get to share something that I love, and I'm so glad that you're enjoying it. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> that you hoped that my therapist doesn't really earn his copay. Oh, he earns his copay. Uh, I, for complicated reasons that I won't go into, uh, started going to see a therapist a little over a year ago to talk about my family and my issues from growing up and the ways that my childhood were in many ways, very idyllic. And at the same time, like very strange and oppressive and scarring. And I learned that I exhibit behaviors associated with a specific kind of trauma that is more or less expected to be uh, manifested and experienced by people who were raised in cults. My childhood involved a lot of being in a these days I realize it's not that remote, but at the time it was very remote place uh, in the Appalachian mountains. And, you know, we were 30, 40 minutes from a place that was a town and I was told was the big city and was very dangerous because they had sidewalks there. Literally, I remember as a child being told any place with sidewalks probably wasn't safe. And, you know, it's a weird thing to grow up in, really serious isolation and be told that the world outside is unbelievably dangerous. And at the same time, it'd be unavoidable to be presented with popular culture that tells you that the outside world is very enticing and very alluring and even liberating. So I've spent a lot of my life processing stuff around that. And so all the stuff about, <laughs> about how Dracula, you know, controls Jonathan and controls the access he has to the outside world and limits his ability to communicate and then forces him to provide false communications about how great everything is and how he's on his way so that he can obviously kill off Jonathan Harker and let the world think that something happened to him between Transylvania and London, not in Transylvania. 
there's a part of that that in a very minor way really resonates with a lot of my childhood where I got told a lot about how lucky I was to be in a place that I hated and how I really needed to be more grateful for it. Uh, that sort of gaslighting is, you know, the first sign of an abuser, somebody who tells you how lucky you are and lies to you and convinces you to do things that they then like don't live up to or never intended to live up to in the first place. And they're just trying to create opportunities for you to feel humiliated. That's something that I think more people than are willing to talk about it have experienced it in their lives and in their relationships. I have experienced it in my life. I have experienced it in at least one relationship that I can think of. And uh, that stuff really hits home. I think that nationally we're dealing with that too, quite frankly, at the moment where we have a president who is the king of gaslighting and lying to people and manipulating them and telling them how lucky we are to have him when he hasn't done a damn thing. So that is all. Whoa. Wow. I did not expect to be finding all of that in Dracula, a novel written well over a century and a quarter ago. The other thing that I thought about during this time of during reading this part was the bits with the Rom. That's really fascinating. Uh, I've read a lot about the Rom actually. Uh, One of my very best friends is of significant Rom heritage. Like it was not a part of his family's culture growing up, but their his descent from folks who were of the Romani uh, eventually became known to him in adulthood. And then he's done a lot of research into that part of his genealogy. And it's very interesting to know somebody who experiences firsthand the ways that people stereotype the ROM and, uh, and when you, I don't know, it's, it's interesting to hear him talk about it because he did not grow up in that culture, but, he is capable of feeling like when somebody expresses a stereotype about the Rom that they're essentially expressing that about him. When they say that everybody of Romani descent is inherently bad or shifty or sketchy or suspicious or whatever, then they're saying that about him, you know, and, and it's really interesting to have known somebody who experienced that. A lot of us experience marginalization and prejudice Uh, I think the vast majority of us ultimately get told that we are in a minority and there's a pretty small minority of people who get told that they're the majority and all the rest of us who get marginalized one way or another get told in the process of that marginalization that we are alone in that marginalization, that nobody else gets marginalized. And, uh, and that's part of how they keep us down, you know, and my experience is not the experience of somebody who is Rom or who is a woman or who is African American or black or a a Latino person or Latinx person. I don't have those experiences and I don't think that my experience as a gay man maps perfectly onto those because it doesn't. But something that I said to another writer the other day when we were talking about how he, a person of color could diversify the sexual identities of the characters in a book he's writing I said, the thing that you need to keep in mind is that our experiences are not the same. And anybody who looks like me, some white dude, and says that my experience is the same as his, a black man, that person is lying. That person is is being very disingenuous. He has had a very different experience from me. But he and I have the same enemies. That's where our experiences intersect. 
the same people want to keep us down and they're doing it in different ways and they're framing it as being for different reasons. But ultimately the reason is the same and it's to preserve their place at the top of the heap. All of this is to say, check your voter registration. In North Carolina, you have precious little time left to register. So if you are not registered by the time you hear this, October 15th through October 31st is the open, uh, one-stop, no-excuse, early in-person voting period, where you can go to an early voting location in the county where you reside, and you can register and vote on the spot. Take advantage of that, no matter what you have to do. Wear a mask, wash your hands, keep your distance, but go in person. It's what I'm doing this year. Uh, I'm already registered, but I'm going to go vote early in person because I am not going to let some stupid mistake or a car accident or twisting my ankle or forgetting or whatever get in the way of me voting this year. So thanks for listening. And up next, more of Dracula. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. The theme music is Bucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution License at ccmixter.org. <laughs>